Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Steve Swat, a venerable name in the world of reporting. Steve was a reporter at the San Francisco Examiner and also at United Press International, uh, where he was competition to us at the Associated Press. Um, he was also a longtime uh, political reporter at KCRA TV here in, in uh, Sacramento. And he's the lead author of Game Changers 12 Elections That Transformed California, which has it's gotten great reviews. Uh, I have not read it, Steve, but two people at the AP meeting we have once a month said it was great. They read it and they really liked it. Um, yeah, and you, uh, I would say you practically owned the Insight Show with Beth Ruyak for a while. You yeah. were on there talking about yeah. that. And you've also got another book coming out. This is what you get to do when you're retired, you know? He's got another book coming out, Paving the Way Women Struggle for Political Equality in California. But that's all a little too heady for our podcast. We're, we're interested in um, RFK, the, the shooting in, in Los Angeles 50 years ago. Today. Uh, today. And I, I guess, uh, you know, and I saw he actually expired after midnight. So that was June 6th, uh, 1968. But June 5th, we're using that as the anniversary. And you were down in Los Angeles for UPI. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. You were actually at home and came in the next morning. You were... Like you said, you were asleep when it happened. You came in the next morning, and it was sort of all hands on deck, and um, everybody was sort of scrambling to cover this amazing story. Do you have any memories of, of that time, Steve, that you can share with us? I, I do. Uh, first of all, that was my first full-time job in journalism, and I had a newly minted master's degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley a few months earlier. And so, uh, actually, yeah, a few months earlier. And so I came down to Los Angeles working for UPI, and we have, you know, dozens of reporters and staffers, and we're working around the clock. We used to have a, a saying called, we have a, we're on a deadline every minute. And so the, the, the news bureau in downtown Los Angeles was constantly being uh, staffed. And so uh, I was on a, a night crew, and I went home um, before midnight and went to bed because I was exhausted. And we had other people, obviously, covering the elections. And then I, I, I get up early in the morning, 6 o'clock or so, and hear the news. And first thing I did is I just threw on some clothes, rushed into the downtown office, and it was almost, you know, two, three days where we had very, very little sleep. Um, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy was killed uh, at 12.15, just after midnight, just after he had won the California primary. He won 172 delegates, and he pulled ahead of Eugene McCarthy in the battle against Hubert uh, Humphrey. And he had momentum going for him. He also won South Carolina that same day, or South Dakota. How do you think he would day. have done? Hey, Steve, how do you think he would have done uh, if he had been able, if he had survived and was able to run, uh, complete his run for president? Uh, you know, I think he would have had a pretty good chance because uh, Hubert Humphrey was sort of a pariah to many uh, liberals uh, in California and throughout the nation, really. Uh, because he was the right-hand man and vice president of Lyndon Johnson, who was prosecuting the war in Vietnam, which was very unpopular. And so Eugene McCarthy started out as the peace candidate, and he just sort of fell back a bit when um, when Bobby Kennedy got into the race. And Kennedy had the momentum, and he had the golden name, and he uh, was a great campaigner, and he was gaining on Hubert Humphrey. And my, I, I would surmise that Kennedy would have won the nomination. And, and you covered the trial. Uh, you'd mentioned you're one of the two reporters, UPI reporters, that had covered that trial. 
uh, how was that to cover? What were the stresses of covering that trial and filing, you know, under filing bulletins under deadline, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's the one thing about the wire services, UPI or AP, is that we really did have constant deadlines, and you were constantly updating stories. We used to call them first leads or second leads. And so when there was something that was uh, interesting in the trial, you couldn't, you didn't want to wait until the end of the day to file your story. You wanted to get that information out as quickly as possible. Now, you have to remember, back then, I was a rookie reporter, and we had big, big UPI names covering the major stories. And I was 23, and they're not going to give a big story to me uh, at that age and with very little experience. But at the Sirhan trial, I was like the number two. We had a top reporter who did the main story, and I would sit there in the courtroom. And if he left the courtroom to go file a story or to add a few paragraphs to a story, I would stay behind, take notes, and and then help him uh, with with the notes uh, afterwards. And so uh, I have some you know vivid memories of that. I sat through the, the entire trial. It was three months, and uh, I should say back then justice really was swift because within ten months of the shooting. Uh, Sirhan Sirhan had been tried and convicted, and uh, it was just a, a fascinating case. He, um, he, his defense tried to claim that it was unpremeditated and that it was a spontaneous killing, but Sirhan himself uh, said that uh, he basically planned it, and he had left behind, uh, and they found some notebooks that he had uh, written in, and he said in those notebooks uh, that he was determined to kill uh, RFK, is the way he put it, uh, that he had an unshakable obsession uh, about killing Kennedy, and that he must be assassinated before June 5th, 1968. So obviously those words uh, didn't help the defense's uh, uh, contention that he had diminished capacity and was making a spontaneous uh, decision was was the uh, gun was was did you have the, uh, the the trail of the gun sounded interesting. I know we chatted a little bit before the the trail of the gun the the provenance of the gun sounded interesting. It actually came from the brother at one point, right, to Sirhan? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, as soon as sort of backtracking, as soon as I got into the office, which was the fall, you know, the morning later, the morning after Kennedy was shot. You know, I was on the desk, uh, as were other reporters. And so, you know, on the desk, I would be working the phones. I would be fielding uh, reports and information from reporters and, fit, and sort of fitting them into stories. I was answering questions from dozens of UPI mem member newspapers and things like that. And we were in tremendous competition, of course, with the Associated Press. Um, that So that on Thursday, which uh, which was the day that Kennedy actually died, he died, died at 144 in the morning. Uh, I worked on a story about the 22 caliber pistol that was used by Sirhan in the shooting. And according to the Attorney General, Thomas Lynch, it was bought by an L.A. man in 1965 for home protection during the Watts riots. And then he gave it to his daughter for her protection. She didn't want the gun in the house because she had two small children and was worried about the gun falling into the wrong hands. So she gave it to her neighbor. And it was the neighbor who later sold it to Munir Sirhan, the suspect's brother. Wow. And that was the gun that was used in the assassination, right? That was the gun that was used in the assassination. And that is, I was going to throw in one other story, which sticks in my mind to this, this day. There was another reporter, a radio reporter, uh, by the name of Andrew West. And he, his some of his radio report became really famous because he was broadcasting live 
just in that corridor on the way to the kitchen uh, outside that ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel where Kennedy was shot. And he was on live. And I'll never forget, I mean, I've heard the broadcast. Uh, I'll never forget, just as soon as the shots rang out, he says, Senator Kennedy has been shot. Senator Kennedy has been shot. I'm right here. And Rafer Johnson, who was a who was a sort of a with Kennedy and Rafer Johnson was the Olympic decathlon uh, winner previously. He says, Rafer Johnson is a hold of the man who apparently has fired the, the shot. Get the gun, get the gun. And he says, get the gun maybe a dozen or so times. Oh, was that the radio was, reporter that said that? I didn't realize that. I thought it was somebody yeah. else, but I remember hearing that. It's really dramatic. I remember hearing that. Yeah. Yes. That's Andrew West. And he worked for a radio station called KRKD in Los Angeles. And he's almost yelling into the microphone, almost forgetting that he's on the air live. He says, get the gun, get the gun, get his thumb, break it if you have to. And Rayford Johnson wrestled the gun away from Sirhan, along with Rosie Greer, who was a professional football player with the L.A. Rams. I mean, he was, what, 6'6", 300 pounds. And they pounced on Sirhan and uh, got the gun away from him. And several other people were shot in that same incident, which I had not originally realized. Yeah, there. Were, yes, the most prominent, um, Paul Schrade, who was a union uh, leader down in Southern California and in California. And uh, he was shot, but he survived. Um, did the, uh, were there conspiracy theories that, it seems like every time we have something like this, conspiracies bloom. And I didn't know that there were many with the RFK, but I just heard, just saw the other day that, um, was it his son? Who said yes. he thought there was he saw a conspiracy? There might have been two gunmen. How is it possible in a crowded, you know, room like that was at the ambassador that a conspiracy theory or a theory like that could, you know, gener- get generated? I don't. You know, personally, I don't. I don't. I don't think it happened. I mean, this is you're talking about RFK Jr. who who thinks there's a there was a second gunman, and and he I guess he talked. He went to prison and talked to Sirhan, and he came out of prison with this idea. But it's interesting. Well, first of all, it was pandemonium down there, right? You know, right off the, the ballroom. It was very crowded. I mean, very close quarters. And uh, I personally, I just don't know how you can get a you know second gunman out of this because everybody saw uh, Sirhan, you know, with the gun, pointing the gun and firing it. But there was a conspiracy theory that popped up right away, uh, two days after the, uh, the shooting on that Thursday. One of our other reporters at UPI. Uh, did a story about uh, a woman in a polka dot dress who was seen running from the ambassador hotel with an unidentified man yelling, we shot him, we shot him. And so someone who heard that and who talked to our reporter uh, said to this woman, who did you shoot? And the woman replied, we shot Senator Kennedy. And that sort of prompted a big search for the woman in this polka dot dress, which to my knowledge, they never found. And since then, of course, there have been 50, you know, 50 years have gone by and we still have conspiracy theories. Now, this woman could have misheard this other woman in the polka dot dress instead of saying we shot him. Maybe she said he shot him. But nonetheless, it was big news at the time. And the, did, did uh, you guys or anybody else do follow up stories on her trying to run it down or it all came to a dead end, it oh. sounds like? Oh yeah, and we we put a reporter or a couple trying to you know find out find this woman. I don't, to my knowledge and recollection, they never found her. Well, did they ever figure out uh, how did Sirhan Sirhan get into that space? Um, what was he doing there that night? Uh, well, interestingly, is that uh, first of all, he was uh, seen at a gun range earlier on Ju- on June fourth, 
practicing shooting. And a witness says that they saw Sirhan sometime before the event uh, at the Ambassador Hotel, presumably casing out the place. So he, if he was there in advance, he probably went to the big ballroom where they, knew, you know, you knew that the Kennedy party would be, and he probably figured out, well, they were going to take him through a back way toward the kitchen through this little corridor, and my guess is that's how he knew where to go. How about uh, on the trial, Steve? You mentioned uh, covering. Were you there for the verdict? Were you able to? Uh, yeah. How, how did that work? Yes, out? I was. What was the logistics of that of covering uh, the trial and having to cover the verdict? This is when everybody was running for phones, like right out of the front page. It, absolutely, this was one of my greatest memories because it was so uh, vibrant and energetic. Uh, back then, <clears throat> we had our main reporter who was in the courtroom with other reporters where the trial was being held. They also had a separate courtroom where they fed in a live closed circuit television picture of the of what was going on in the trial. And so in that in that second courtroom, reporters could walk in and out and leave at will. And that was not a problem. But the reporters could not leave the main courtroom until the judge said you can go. So we're in tremendous competition with the Associated Press. I mean it was AP versus UPI. We had a bit of an inferiority complex because AP was richer and had more uh, more reporters. But what they did is they set up <clears throat> two phones along a corridor outside the second courtroom. Uh, about, I'm guessing now, maybe 100 feet or 150 feet. You had to go down one court, courtroom and then turn left uh, corridor and turn left to another one. And we had a phone that had a direct line to our UPI downtown office, and AP had one with a direct line. And so in competition with Associated Press, uh, if we could beat them onto the wire with a story by a minute or two, that's a big deal, and it makes it makes a big difference. So my job was in that second courtroom, as soon as the verdict came in, run down the hallway, just like out of the front page movie, run down the hallway, uh, pick up the phone, and just say, guilty. And the, we had a story all ready to go that said, Sirhan, Sirhan was guilty. So as soon as – and AP had sent a veteran reporter – I'm guessing, and remember, I'm 24. I'm guessing this guy was like 60 and was not in the shape that I was in uh, to do the same thing uh, for the AP. So as soon as the verdict comes in, everybody, all these reporters are just rushing out the door. I mean, it's just pandemonium. And, and I, they're going to pay phones and, and other phones. Remember, no cell phones then, no texting and things like that. Uh, I, I run to our, our phone. I pick up the phone. Uh, yell guilty. They put stuff out on the wire. Two minutes later, and it was only two minutes, but two minutes later, the AP reporter picks up his AP phone, tells his desk what the verdict was. But we beat him on the we beat him on uh, to get our story out uh, by two minutes, and that two minutes uh, was the difference between major play by the newspapers for us versus Associated Press. So we we won that battle because our story made it on the wires before theirs. You know, I think the AP must have made a mistake or they missed some scheduling issue because usually they have a person waiting in the hallway to trip the UPI reporter, you know, so you fall down. And <laughs> that's, well, you that's know, not- you know there, some, of these story, some of these stories are legendary. You, you probably know the story back in uh, 1963 when the, the car in the J- J- President Kennedy's motorcade, the car right behind the, the president's car, and when he was shot, there was one phone in that car, and there was an AP reporter and a UPI reporter named Merriman Smith. The UPI reporter picks up that one phone, 
starts dictating the story, and he stays on the line and prevents the AP reporter from getting the phone. Yeah, he wouldn't give up the phone. Yeah, I think the AP report. I think it was a guy named Jack Bell, and and he couldn't get the phone. The AP guy, good Merriman Smith, was hunched over it, and uh, you know, right. and he got and a portrait for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, Do you miss that competition now? I mean, now you're a you're a famous author now. So I mean, do you miss uh, you know the good old days when you ran around for the phones and screamed into the oh, phone? Well, yeah, when you're when you're in your twenties or thirties, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I only spent a couple of years at UPI, and you know, but I was obviously when I came up to Sacramento, everything you know, you have your competition. But the AP versus UPI competition was something else, and it's something really out of history. And it's it's a throwback to the twenties. Uh, really, in, in many regards, and, and the the competition among newspapers, and it's very enervating and exciting, and you feel that you not only are w- witnessing history, but you're you're part of a, you know, you're sort of a part of a, a major force that is informing the American people about what is happening. Well, when you mentioned that AP was better finance, I couldn't help but think of the motto: "You can't spell cheap without AP." Clearly, that's that's <laughs> still true now. I think. <laughs> Steve, one well, last I, question. Yeah. You've done television, too, a lot of it. Um, was there anything, thinking about TV coverage, what was the high moment for you as far as a television reporter goes? Well, I covered most, I mean, I covered, you know, general assignment for a few years and the Juan Corona trial and, uh, you know, earthquakes and, you know, plane crashes and you name it, all sorts of stuff. But for me, my, my, my love has always been politics, and I spent most of my time at KCRA covering politics. So, you know, for me, the most fun is covering political conventions, even though political conventions aren't what they used to be. But I remember 1976 when there was, you know, it was Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan going for the Republican convention, and they were virtually tied throughout the convention. And there was talk of a co-presidency, and I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of drama uh, at that. And then I just recall 1981 at Ronald Reagan's inaugural in Washington, D.C., we did the first live satellite broadcast back to Sacramento. And so some of those milestones stick with me. Okay. On that happy note, we're going to say thank you, Steve Swat, for joining us today. It was a lot of fun. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Hey, thank you. And this is John Howard. We will see you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.